Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have James Mays, CEO and co-founder of Mind the Product. In this episode, James shared a couple of lessons from his first failed startup and why he decided to join a growing startup after. We then dove into how James and the team at Mind the Product pivoted the business to a subscription-based model during COVID, the research they conducted to identify what should be part of the offering and how they expanded that over time. We finished off with James sharing about the acquisition by Pendo and what's next for Mind the Product. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, James, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, James is the CEO and co-founder of Mind the Product, which was recently acquired by Pendo. Mind the Product is one of the world's largest product communities with meetups, training, conferences all over the world. And uh, James also previously co-founded Tweet Jobs, providing consultancy and fulfillment channels for recruitment agencies and corporate clients. So my first question for you, James, today is actually what happened to Tweet Jobs? Tweet Jobs was the result of me spending 15 or so years in the recruitment industry, needing to get out of that, wanting to go and play with this new technology world, and particularly social media. So this was 2008, 2009. And I ran smack into getting a startup up and running and then realizing just exactly how much I didn't know. So in about 18 months, that fell apart completely. Um, and it left me with two challenges that I wanted to answer for myself. One is go work for a slightly more advanced startup that's achieved a few more things and actually understand what goes on inside one. Um, and secondly, there's this thing apparently at the heart of a really successful startup called good product management. I had none of that and I really needed to learn. So that led me to finding the product and community, uh, which was at that point sort of in its early days, um, founded by Jana, Simon and Martin. Very nice. Yeah. And uh, Jana as well, again, thanks for uh, the recommendation for today's episode. Uh, Jana was a previous uh, guest on the show and actually one of the episodes, still one of my top, I would say, five episodes. I think the lessons and learnings in, in that episode around onboarding and activation were really, really fantastic. Uh, we'll definitely leave them in the show notes and recommended listen uh, to anyone listening today. But um, yeah, so let's just go into the two jobs a little bit because I think this is like uh, for myself, it resonates a lot as well. You get started uh, with a new company, like you're fresh, you don't know a lot. It's like, what would you say was like one of the one or two learnings, like top two learnings that you got out of that experience? Because I think obviously that led to the success that you have today. But uh, what are the painful mistakes that you felt you made there? 
So I think with Tweet Jobs, there were two uh, big examples that stand out. Firstly, we raised the wrong money from the wrong uh, investors to start off with. Uh, we had a couple of angels who were happy to get on board early, um, but they didn't really add anything other than the money. And we could have done with an awful lot more support in terms of what we didn't know. Uh, so I think probably raising money for the right people is a really key lesson that we picked up there. The second is that we then, having managed to raise a bit of angel money, ran headlong into building some product. We should have spent another three months at least doing some actual, some customer discovery, really working closely with people in our target industry with the problem that we thought we were addressing and understand that in a lot more detail than we really did. So what happened was that we ran forwards and started building product. And actually when we got it to market, the realization was that most people needed learning way more than they needed product at that point. There was an opportunity there, but they didn't understand it well enough. They just knew, they just knew there was an opportunity there. And yep. that, that wasn't enough for them to really leverage the product in the way that we want. Yeah. Two very, very common learning. I'd say the second a lot more common than the first, but uh, it's good to, to hear that. And then you took that knowledge. You mentioned like the uh, next thing was like to go to a company that was doing really, really well, go learn about these things. Like, um, did you take that? Uh, where did you go next? And uh... I went to a company called Brave New Talent in London, which at that point had raised a couple of million. They had a team of about 15 people, uh, well-connected founder, great board of advisors. So that for me felt like this is a startup that's slightly more advanced. I can go here and really learn a little bit more about what, what makes a successful startup and takes you on that journey. They were a couple of years ahead in the journey. So that kind of felt like the right place for me to go. They were building something in the recruiting space. So I leveraged my previous industry knowledge and connections. Um, and it, it got me embedded with a team like that, working in that environment. And that's where I first met Jana. She was the head of product and I was the head of commercial. Oh yeah. Well, it's always good to see how these sort of uh, connections are made and uh, where you meet uh, these people. Uh, and similarly, I think for me as well, I had a very similar experience to you and that founded like a few different companies, uh, realized I didn't know enough uh, even after that. And like they say, one of the best lessons is just getting started, but they're also uh, just being immersed in an environment, which is like really, really sophisticated and uh, good understanding and building a good company can learn, you learn so much. I think for me, I spent about three and a half years at Hotjar and I also joined around 20 to 30 uh, team members. It grew to about 100 to 120 when I left. But the learning curve over those three years, like I got starting my business, I don't think I would have that same uh, like experience and the knowledge that was gained. It was like an accelerated uh, degree, I would say, in that time. I've heard uh, so many people refer to sort of a year or two at an early stage startup like that. It's not far different from doing an, a sort of really intense MBA. The learning out of it is incredible if you're open. Yeah, uh, because I think the thing is typically at these sort of companies like generalists are hired, hired at the early stage and then more specialists at the later stage. So having like that ability to move in different directions, explore different problems, take on different challenges like, uh, is amazing. A bit of sales, a bit of product, a bit of marketing. It was, it was a real nice rounded role where I got to touch a lot of different aspects of the business. Cool. And then you, you took that then and um, moved into Mind the Product at some point. Uh, Jenna, like, bring over, tell us how that happened. So uh, basically, Mind the Product originally was um, a meetup and a, an unconference product camp. It was uh, Martin Erickson started Product Tank, and then Simon Cast, Jana Basto did London Product Camp. Somebody connected the three of them and said, Hey, you're all doing events in community for product managers. You should work together. So they did for a year or so, uh, sort of gathered space, gathered some pace, started to build a community in London. And Jana and I were working together at uh, Brave New Talent at this point. And we got talking about Product Tank and it turning into its first London conference. And I, I, I took a look as a commercial one. I took a look at the numbers and said, I think you could do slightly better on the sponsorship side. I think this maybe has more potential. 
Uh, and that resulted in me getting involved essentially as the fourth co-founder to drive the commercial side of things and really build those partner relationships, look at other market opportunities and figure out how to really take things forward from there. So I wasn't, I certainly wasn't first in the door, but I was very much early stage. Very nice. Uh, yeah. And then we spoke uh, a little bit about obviously what Mind the Product does. Uh, and you mentioned it was sort of like the unconference, but essentially started out building community. Uh, today, actually, what we wanted to chat about and the recommendation from Jenna, I thought it was really interesting, was as Mind the Product, uh, you've shifted business models a couple of times or like introduced one and then shifted. And then now recently been acquired by Pendo. Maybe just give us like the high level overview and then we can see where we're going to dive into. Uh, so initially it was a, a free community meetup and people started saying to us, wouldn't it be great if we could hear some stories from how product is built in the Valley? Well, we can, but we have to fly people over and put them in hotels. You get a few of those on the same day, then potentially you can charge for tickets. So accidentally your conference was born. And then you do that good product thing of listening to your customers, right? And they start to talk about saying, wouldn't it be great if it was a two-day event? Wouldn't it be great if there was some tactical hands-on stuff? Okay, great. We'll start building workshops. And then you realize that that classroom's got 20 people in it, but 18 come from the same firm. So maybe you should go to that firm direct and start working with them. So the training business started to evolve over that. And then the conference starts going overseas and the product tank meetups started growing. So product tank started in London, but it's now in 218 cities around the world, um, touching a total of about 350,000 product managers. And so it spiraled out and that kind of gave us an immense base. And then this thing called the pandemic hit. Um, at that point, we were about 98, 99% reliant on real world events for our revenue. We'd spent 2019 investing hard in the platform, hard in the team, grown our payroll to about 20 odd people, revenue zeroed overnight. And you look at the bank account, you're like, we've got a bit of runway there, but it's not a lot. And then that runway started shrinking because we started issuing refunds on all the events that we couldn't run. Um, you know, one of the products is built on brand and reputation. So the last thing we wanted to do was say, oh, sorry, but we're hanging on to your ticket money anyway. We yep. had a very good choice and said, you can roll into a future event or we'll give you a refund. So at that point, it was sort of a hard and sharp pivot was needed. Um, Martin Erickson and Emily Tate led all this piece of work primarily. Uh, and essentially, the, the very swift conclusion was, we've got 10 years worth of amazing content all over the web. And we've got an audience, 350,000 people who love us and rely on what we do. Some sort of membership subscription premium business here makes sense. So from that, um, Emma and Marcy went deep fast on the customer research. What should go into a membership offering? What will people value? What will people keep coming back for? What's the thing that we can offer that's unique? Really does. Um, and then the first version of that product was shipped in, I want to say about eight, 10 weeks, something like that. Uh, one backend developer, Sean, worked like an absolute demon to actually ship something that we could put in front of customers and do that. Will they actually pay us money for this? Do people like it? Will they use it? So the first version was pretty quick and dirty. Um, and then he spent the last two years of really polishing and really making it purpose, uh, sort of starting to look at what else does it need? Where else should it go? And iterating on that product. Yeah. Interesting. And like, I think this is one of the things we've had on the show a few times, like traditional, uh, business, like software businesses, um, doing on-premise and stuff, and then starting moving into the cloud and doing subscription. And I think those stories are very interesting. This was sort of one where it was like born out of necessity was that, uh, you had this uh, thing, but you mentioned like some research was done and trying to figure things out. Like what were you trying to look into and understand at this point? So you sort of had uh, overnight COVID happens, all events canceled, this oh shit moment. What are we going to do? Uh, what are the first thing you started looking into to try and figure out, okay, like this is the right move to go next? So the first thing was to say, let's brainstorm. What would we put in a membership offering? Bearing in mind, pretty much the entire team is out in furlough, on furlough at this point. We've got virtually no money in the bank. 
what do we have as an asset that we could use? Where do we go with this? And it was things like, uh, we've got an amazing network of speakers right around the world that gives us access to content, to stories, to material of some sort or another. We've got this amazing audience all around the world. Cool. That's an asset. We've got amazing SEO and people will always find us if they're searching for answers to problems, problems and challenges. Cool. Um, so start building it out from there. It's like, okay, let's build a bucket of 10, 12, 15 things that could go in an offering and then push that out to the audience, get them to stack rank it. Which of these things are really important to you? So we could learn about what was going to be critical to that first membership launch. And that very much challenged some of our early assumptions. I mean, one of the assumptions that we baked right in at the start was if we've got a membership program, then those members are going to expect discounts to the annual conference. You put that out in the list of stack ranking, turns out not so much. People aren't really that price sensitive to a one-day conference ticket. What they are more interested in saying is you've got access to the very best product speakers, coaches, and mentors right around the world. How can we get more access to that? That was the kind of thing that people really valued and really wanted to see more of. So that then led us down the route of saying, you know, do we put together occasional evening member events or AMA sessions with product legends or things of that nature? Um, so that was an intense learning experience, incredibly valuable. Nice. So to sum that up as well, like you sort of sat down, what are the assets? What do we have that we can really deliver the community? Where, where are our strong points and so forth? And then uh, you created the survey uh, just on sort of like, what are the main aspects you want? What was it? It was just basically like, what would you like to see in a subscription service from us? And all of these things, which ones are really important to get? Build the thing that the, that the people actually want, right? Yeah. And how many like sort of people were you trying to reach with this? How many responses did you get? Off the back. Uh, we were looking just at, at that first stage, literally anything over a couple of hundred responses. It was like, that's going to be a useful indication. Thank you. Yeah. And we were able to go to the community and say, look, you've been getting all of this content for the last decade because we can subsidize it via the conferences. We can't do that anymore. So if you wanted to keep going, we need to do something like this. We really need your input. Help us shape this. And now I think one of the things you can say with a community of product managers is they love seeing experiments. They love seeing people, you know, they love watching people learn and doing those feedback exercises and things like that. Yeah, they were a loyal audience, but they were also exactly of the right mindset. And, you know, a classic example would be saying, sometimes we don't actually get feedback. You know, if you, if you launch a software product and it doesn't work, users just disappear half the time. Ours don't. They'll email us and say, as a user, I would like it to do this in order that I can achieve this. So we'll sometimes get full-on user stories as feedback. It's amazing. That is awesome. I noticed something very similar actually with uh, Avrio, the company that I founded. Especially when we try to go out to get people to speak to, like it is really, really easy to recruit participants because researchers and product managers themselves like are familiar with this process and want to uh, give back. Because, you know, you, you can launch a beta and you can say, this is a beta. It will have bugs. We are looking to learn about X, Y, and Z. And they'll do that for you. They'll give you that feedback. And fundamentally, it means the product that we're building for them will improve faster. Absolutely. So... You go out, do this exercise. It's okay. Now we figured out these are like the three or four things that absolutely need to go into subscription. Uh, you have a, a, luckily you have a backend engineer who managed to put this all there. You push it out. Um, how does it evolve from there? So from there, first off, we start pushing it out. Um, and the early adopters are very much that core community of people who've been loyal to us for a long, long time. And they are, you know, they're right up on us. We can see how much of a tough time you're having. We can see you're trying to do the right thing, keep business alive. How can we support? Absolutely, we're in. So we had that core of early adopters who loved us deeply. Um, and then from there, it's the case of driving it to the wider audience, getting adoption from particularly uh, the US and the Far East, sitting here in the middle in London. It's like, we don't just want to build a product for London. We need adoption wider so that we can make sure that we're building right for everybody. Product in Asia Pack, for example, is a very different adventure to product in the US. Um, and then from there, it's kind of, 
okay, let's look at saying we now do online conferences. We're pivoting our workshops to running online because this this COVID thing is not going to go away anytime soon. How do we dovetail those? So we started thinking about very much how that model links in with the wider mind, the product experience. Uh, and one of the key messages that emerged, particularly from our larger customers, was this idea of saying, we like sending our people as a team to the conference or as a team to a facilitated workshop. That's an exciting kickoff event. And we can then use the membership program to actually underpin a community of practice going forwards. So it gives them this extended learning resource. Um, we're continuing to work on that in terms of how the two dovetail together and how they really do link. But I think that's been probably the single biggest learning of the last few months is the way that we can work those two work together, the better the experience, particularly for large product communities. Very nice. And so you mentioned one thing like there was launching and then getting adoption in Middle East, US. Like what did you do to make that start to happen? Obviously you had your initial uh, user base to work with, but what were some of the activities you're running to now, like get the subscription um, off the ground? One of the, one of the first things we, did, we had to do obviously was cancel the, uh, the physical conferences. Um, and we had a uh, Singapore conference scheduled, which we had to bend fairly swiftly and said, okay, we're going to have to run our first digital conference. We know this is not going to be pretty because frankly, nobody's running online conferences. We were one of the first out the door with that. So we purposely put that together, shipped it quickly. The, the aim of that conference wasn't to be perfect, simply to get a conference online delivered where we could get that feedback from the community and learn what kind of format works, what doesn't work, where does this break, where is this different from physical? And then started linking the membership in with that. So that we started to drive some addition, some initial adoption in the Far East. And we could start getting that feedback and see how it was used there. So that then very much started that journey of building up right around the world where we could start to get feedback um, and then feed that product team to figure out, okay, what are the priorities? From, what makes a difference? Yeah. And so uh, at this time as well, I think like you needed to move really fast, but I think shortly afterwards, a lot of companies sort of felt the, the same way and sort of this, I noticed this mass sort of like movement towards webinars and online content and uh, the amount must have ballooned in like 2020, 2021, the amount of available content online and the number of conferences people were attending. So how did you approach this uh, from your perspective, like uh, conference fatigue and uh, competition that just sort of automatically emerged overnight and competition in a market that never really uh, was an issue or something for you to concern about in the beginning? Yeah, I think one of the things we all saw was an explosion of online events generally, and a lot of them were vendor-driven in one way or another, webinars and so yeah. on. Um, one of the things that uh, was missing from that was that the vast majority of those events were broadcast only. But fundamentally, I think a lot of companies sort of look at community, and look at audience and think they're the same thing. They think they can, they can be leveraged in similar ways. They can't. Um, audience is fundamentally where your company is speaking to people. It's one-way communication. The difference with community is that it's two-way. Now we previously had the meetups. We previously had the conferences. People would come together and have those conversations. So one of the bits that was most enjoyable was being able to say, let's do an occasional AMA session for our members. Well, we'll bring a legend along like Teresa Torres or Marty Kagan. Um, and it'll be a question and answer session. And initially some of them are the product team asking those questions, but then involve the community, get them to ask the questions. What are you struggling with? And again, it was that peer community idea of saying, yeah, you'd listen to somebody at uh, a relevant company in the same space. Oh, we're really struggling with this. We're not sure how to do this. How would you approach that? And that then provides the community therapy that everybody was missing from the physical events. And it stood out for all, this isn't just, a, this isn't just another webinar. This is a bit where I can hear what my peers are struggling and have that. So I think facilitating that conversation is a key part of what we do well. Interesting. 
Uh, and yeah, I, I like the point as well of like the audience versus community aspects uh, from your side. What are some of the, the areas like where you see community being really different to audience and uh, how are you leveraging uh, the community outside of like now obviously moving to uh, the subscriptions? I think community is an interesting thing. There's, I think there's a deeper loyalty that exists within community because people build not just relationships with the company, but with other people. So it can be a lot stickier. Um, it's also a lot more difficult to manage though. It does come with more risks. If it's a company to audience communication, it's like everything is pretty sanitized. There's no real risk there. Whereas when you've got community, you do occasionally have bad actors. So it does take a little bit more time and attention to pay, you know, to, to look after that. It has to be nurtured. It has to be grown. Um, so, you know, we're, we're investing more in that as I think everybody who runs community is, but also see community changing shape now. And I think why the product being acquired by Pendo is probably one of the dozen deals that we can all see in the last 12 months it's gone through. Yeah. Let's talk about that as well. Cause that was going to be the next question is I've noticed this trend too. <laughs> it's a good segue. I've noticed this trend as well of uh, various startups now acquiring, uh, like these communities, acquiring blogs, like, uh, like trying to acquire either the media house component or the community component. And, um, what makes this deal interesting in, in your, uh, from your perspective? I think the thing that makes it interesting is that, um, firstly, there's awesome, uh, actual product fit. Pendo from the very start has been about building software for product managers, whereas mine, the product from the start has always been about building services for product managers. So the two fit wonderfully together. We've always said we won't build product, but if you want workshops or training or newsletters, or podcasts, or conference or meetups, that's us. We do that. Um, Pendo, as I say, they've got the, uh, the analytics side of things or the music guiding side of things, the feedback portal, the roadmap portal. So all of the different product suite, uh, the product manager wants. So there's that fit, which is awesome. But aside from that, as we started delving into the conversation, it became clear that Pendo had a good understanding of events and community in this space as well. So they'd previously been running the Pendemonium conference, which was a user conference, or they had product craft, which was a publication for product managers. So they had a good understanding of our core business propositions anyway. But when we started to look at that, it was a case of, you know, they'll keep running Pendemonium, but it will remain the user conference. Whereas the mind the product conference will remain the big open house where the whole industry gets to come together and discuss the future of craft. And Pendo really understood what that differentiator should look like and why those two, two things should be able to continue. So, you know, I think there's always a concern if you get acquired by a vendor, is it just going to turn into a mouthpiece for them? Uh, and Pendo understood that risk from the very outset. It's like, we're here to build software. If you see us doing things with the community, you think of risk here, or you think it going along the wrong path, please shout, please say so. You're there to protect that community and continue to nurture it the way you always have. Yeah, I definitely say that is like one of the first things that came to mind uh, when it's like you mentioned this audience versus community aspect, and then this acquisition almost feels like it moves to more, it's more like an audience versus uh, community move, but what are some of the things and the ways that you have the freedom to protect the community? And like, how is this acquisition uh, structured at the moment? Is, are you a part of the Pendo team uh, fully? Is it still operating as independent units? Like, because uh, does this fall maybe under marketing within uh, Pendo? What does the structure look like that internally? So fundamentally, we sit within the brand team of Pendo now, uh, which I think is great because that's, that gives you a very clear indication that it's not part of sales, it's not part of marketing. It does carry a target. It does carry a number. It's there to raise awareness. Now, fundamentally, our, our vision as one of product was always to make more product managers and to make smarter product managers. Now, if we do that, that grows Pendo's total addressable market anyway. That's a good thing for any SaaS firm, right? And they get the goodwill reflected of the community by, you know, for supporting us along this journey. Um, in terms of the way the team operates, 
Pendo have a London office. They make a uh, team are over in North Carolina and Raleigh. Uh, so we get the, the facilities of the London office should we need. We have their finance and legal teams behind us, which is fantastic. That's a great resource for us to draw on. But in terms of the editorial and the curation, we remain that, we, we retain that level of autonomy. And again, this discussion that we had early on with Pendo was around the curation at the main stage for the conference, because that's kind of the, the jewel in the crown. We get so many people who come to us and say, I have a career aspiration. I want to speak on the mind of product stage one day. So we had that conversation with Pendo, uh, and the, uh, the position that we reached was mind the product will retain control of the curation, but where we'd love to hear from Pendo is where they say, we're dealing with customers around, around the world. This is a growing trend. You should consider this as a curation team. Is there a speaker that you think might fit? So absolutely feed into us, talk to us about the trends that you see out there in the market. Talk to us about what your customers are struggling with. That's great insight for us. Yeah. But otherwise the existing curation committee retains its own autonomy. It exists as it always was. Cool. And what does it take to get on the stage then, uh, mind the product? So typically what we're looking for is people who are super credible in the product industry. They've got stories to tell. They've earned those battle skills, right? And then secondly, they've got to be able to get on that stage and get up in front of 1500 people, keep them engaged, keep them enthralled and give them a takeaway that they leave saying, I feel emotional about this. I either feel inspired or I feel curious. You go inspire something in them. Uh, we've always said that the, the product tank meetups that happen all around the world, month in, month out, that's kind of the stuff that gets you through the day to day. That gives you the tactical tips, the go try this, you're struggling with that. Whereas the annual conference, the thing that's there to remind you why you got into product in the first place, it's there to inspire you for the year ahead. This is not necessarily an easy job. That does make it rewarding, but it also means you need some resilience baked in. That's what the conference is for. So a lot of the best speakers that we've got are people who've been guests on the podcast before, or they've written guest post articles for us before, or they've spoken on a product tank stage somewhere. And, you know, an organizer from Hamburg will come and tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, I had a speaker last week at our local product tank. They were awesome. You should consider them for the main stage. So that product network is kind of a talent winder pipeline for us. Uh, and pretty much every major conference we run, there's been somebody on that main stage who previously spoke at a product tank and we'd be like, that's talent. Great. How can we coach them? How can we help them develop that story? That needs to go to a wider audience. That's very cool. And it's nice that you sort of have these feelers out there uh, across the world and uh, pushing forward uh, some good talent to you. The next thing then as well, so being acquired, we talked a little bit about like what the plans are uh, for uh, integration with Pendo and stuff. What would you say is like a big move now for Mind the Product? Uh, are conferences coming back? Are they coming back in a big way? Like, And then how does this now merge with the subscription uh, that's been introduced? Like, what are your plans and thoughts on that? So the subscription side of things, we've, we've, we've started to work out what that model looks like with the two coming together. So typically now when somebody buys a ticket to the annual conference, they'll get one of those memberships bubbled as well. We're trying to drive a lot more of that. Yeah, it's that idea of one day, get really inspired. And then the rest of the year, have this content and these smaller events that continue to underpin that, drive that forward. And we've got a... Uh, a self-directed learning program on there now with online training modules. So again, that's giving people exercises week by week, bite-sized bits of learning, going to keep moving forwards. In terms of conferences, certainly the appetite is there for physical events again, but there's also a group emerging of people who say, I don't need to get on a plane, travel halfway around the world, take three days out of the office in order to attend a conference. I can get the bits I want in the online recordings, which do exist within the membership portal. So you can just buy membership and not go to the conference if you want. But I think what we're seeing is that that diversity of audience now with two groups, the ones who say, I want really highly polished premium content that I can access from home versus the people who say, I now work at home full time. 
I will take any excuse I can to get out and go meet my peers in the flesh, have a coffee, chew the fat and listen to somebody on a stage. So I think we have, I think those two groups are here to stay. And our challenge is to say, let's make sure that we remain ever conscious that we don't run one event for one audience. We run one event for two separate audiences and we need to map out their journey separately. The online experience will be, you buy a ticket like this, you get your information like that. You attend on the day like this, you engage like that. And it's very, very different to the physical event. And we need to recognize both of those as independent audiences. If we try and treat them both the same, one group or other, we'll end up feeling like second class citizens. And that's absolutely not where we want to be. Yeah. And it's a tough place to be as well, coming from a space where you were like experts at the uh, in-person uh, conferencing and new to this world now of subscriptions and building the model and then trying to create this equal experience for both uh, must take a, a steep learning curve as well uh, from I your perspective. So, but I think we've got incredibly strong product people within the business, Bob, who we are. If we keep those feedback loops nice and tight, if we keep listening to our audience, we keep using the analytics and understanding where are people using it, where are they, where are they spending time, what's not getting touched, that should guide us investing in the right places, sunsetting the wrong things. Um, and I hope we can continue to iterate on this, uh, on, the, on the customer experience, essentially, at the same speed we have over the last couple of years. Um, it is a more complicated model that's emerging, but yep. it does doable. Um, and we've got a great team in place. Very good. Uh, I see we're running up on time. I want to make sure I have time to ask you a couple of questions that I ask every guest. Uh, sure. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company and churner retention is not doing great uh, for you at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, James, like uh, we've got a problem. We need to turn around churn fast. We have 90 days to do it. You're in charge. What do you do? The catch? You're not going to tell me I'm going to speak to my customers like you've been telling me uh, all, all along and learning from their experiences. You're just going to pick a tactic that you've seen work previously at a company and run with that blindly, hoping it works. What would you do? Uh, I think one of the ones that a lot of companies overlook is that question of if we took it away, how much would it hurt? Let's figure out what that feature is or what that function is or what that benefit, what could we take away that would really hurt? And now we know for sure what the, bit, what the best bit is to go invest in, go double down and really drive that engagement. Uh, that for me is a place where a lot of companies don't really understand. You know, if we, if we do these seven things, which one really hurts if we remove it? Um, I think most companies could stand to do a little more research in that. And that's something that you can do fast. That's interesting. And uh, I like that aspect of pulling things away because more, like, most of the time people think, what else should we be building? But uh, it's more often than not, it's like trying to remove. And I think there's also this, I can't remember, it's a specific bias around buying. And we realized this sort of at Hot Show was that we had this suite of tools, all in one, eight tools. And there's actually this negative impact of having stuff that people don't use as well. Uh, in the sense that if like they start to think, okay, wait a second, I'm paying this amount of money and I'm only using two out of the eight tools. Like yeah. I maybe need to go find something where I'm just using one. So in one hand, you might think, yeah, sorry. It, it, it has a double-edged impact that one. I mean, firstly, yeah. it's, you're looking at it from a value point of money, a value for money, spending on things that you're getting. So you feel like you're having a hard time there. And yeah. then secondly, you've got the cognitive load of thinking, there's these four things here that I'm not using, which I should be. And creates undue pressure and stress on anxiety you to engage with a thing that you know there's not a priority so it creates a disingenuous user experience for sure and there's a specific bias uh, for this i can't remember what it's called but this is something we realize and again like you said this what you mentioned now what can we remove uh, versus yeah. like what should we should be adding falls and stuff but 
the Wakaman River where there's the pain, like then you really see like, okay, where should we be spending area? So I love that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard a number of people say, you know, one of the most, most, one of the most important words in any product manager's dictionary should be the word no. <laughs> yeah. Should be a post on the wall in the office uh, or in your home office behind. Last question then. Uh, what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Uh, I'm going to bring this back to uh, actually the question that Jana taught me years ago when I first started looking at product. What problem are you trying to solve? If you don't have a really, really clear answer to that, everything else around churn and retention is going to cause you pain. You need to be incredibly clear on what problem you're solving. Everything else comes into much sharper relief, much more quickly. Absolutely. Uh, I love that as well. And I think that's a great way to, to end the show today as well. James, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Before we go, though, is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like anything they should be aware of uh, around your work? Uh, I think it'd be just great for people to keep an eye on what Wine the Product does as it evolves with Pendo. Um, I'm hoping we can set a real example. Having seen a number of communities acquired over the last couple of years, some of them have made a bit of a mess along the way. Um, I've got a really good feeling about how we're working with Pendo, the kind of statements they're making, the questions they're asking. So I think we've actually got some really exciting stuff to cover over the next 12 months. Very nice. And we'll obviously, we'll leave a note uh, in the show notes, any links and any references to things we chatted about today. Okay. Uh, if people want to find me afterwards. I'm super easy to find on social. Come say hi. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, James, for joining the show. And I wish you best of luck now going forward uh, as you navigate through acquisition. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on board. Cheers, Andrew. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.